Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? Your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series from A to V. After the drama and literal fireworks of episode six, this episode follows our two still separate families through the aftermath. Lady Bridgerton and Lady Danbury work to move through the scandal with soft diplomacy, public appearances, and a surprise ball. But it turns out that this brief period of peace is but the eye of the storm, and another Bridgerton is about to face the consequences of her own decisions. Oh, and there's fireworks in this episode, too. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as at Bridgerton Pod and Instagram as at WWDD Pod. And we'd love for you to tweet us using the hashtag WWDD Pod. She thumps a cane and drinks champagne Just formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would them we do? Hi, I'm Adele. And I'm Kate. And today we have a super special guest host. Guest host, can you please introduce yourself? Hi there, my name is DM and I am a romance story lover. I don't know, I'm trying to figure out how to describe myself. Can I still call myself a romance reader even though I haven't read a romance novel in a long time? Yeah, probably, but yes, I love all things romantic. How about that? So do we. <laughs> yeah, unsurprisingly. <laughs> what is your relationship to Bridgerton? Well, Adele actually gave me an old copy of Duke and I and I gobbled it up and I loved it so much and then I had to borrow the rest from the library. (laughs) So I was the gateway drug. Yeah, Adele, you were the gateway (laughs) drug to historical romance and Julia Quinn. Um, So thank you very much. Bridgerton is just very comforting and just I know that, you know, historical romances, everything will end happily and it'll be fine. But with the Bridgerton, because there are so many of them and the prequel, like I know, I just know that this family will be okay and they will be happy. Um, And that was what really drew me into the Bridgerton family. And do you have a favourite Bridgerton? Good question. Is it Eloise? You're looking conflicted. <laughs> it's like a fav- my favourite Bridgerton and my favourite Bridgerton book is, are like two different things. Oh, that's fine. Hit us with both. You, you know the one where there's um, a female Bridgerton and she, she's like searching for something? Oh, that's Hyacinth's story. Yes, that's Hyacinth. Yeah, <laughs> In his kiss. In his kiss, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I really love that one. And I'm not, I think because that one felt a bit lighter than all the others. Um, the, all the others were a bit too like serious and too dramatic. And that one was very light and she was so silly. And I love Hyacinth would like hang out with the hero's grandmother a lot. Was it the grandmother? Yeah. I just thought that was really lovely. But I reckon Eloise would be my favorite Bridgerton. I'm not thinking about the men. The men are boring, you know. I saw who they are. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I mean, it's a good segue into our episode. So as we've discussed, we don't really go through the episode scene by scene this season. There's just too many scenes. But one of the major storylines of this episode is entirely about Eloise or entirely about Eloise and Penelope and Lady Whistledown and the Queen. But they're all so intertwined that I don't think that we'd be able to tease them apart. So Shall we talk Mm. about Eloise first? When we left last episode, Eloise was disappearing into the afternoon, absconding from her brother's wedding because she had to know what Theo thought about her. And now we kind of know what Theo thinks about her. (laughs) Do we ever? (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, we also know what the Queen thinks about her, which is that she is, in fact, Lady Whistledown. And not only does the Queen think she's Lady Whistledown, the Queen is very prepared to use the full extent of her power to destroy Eloise and her entire family unless Eloise fesses up. So, yeah, let's talk about Eloise. Well, the Queen felt like she had a victory at the end of the last episode. And then the new Whistledown comes out and it says, There's all these theories flying about because Penn clearly caught all the test rumours going out and still blamed the Queen. 
So she's royally pissed. And um, unfortunately, Eloise was the deduction she made. And I don't think that's unfair considering Eloise did leave her brother's wedding. I mean, I don't think it's fair that she came to that conclusion. There's two other elements that are also unfair here. The first is, I mean, she's the fucking queen. Don't use all of your power to crush a very young girl. Unfair part two is, like, I think Penelope is actually a little unfair to the queen. Like, what does Penelope have against the queen? Well, they haven't established that at all. It's not like it's an unrequited grudge. But it feels that way in the show. It feels like it's all coming from the Queen, but with the stuff that's coming from Pen through Whistledown, it is actually a required grudge. <laughs> so, but they haven't done the work on the Pen side to establish what the hell's going on there, except maybe she's just punching up, which, you know, usually I'm all for. That was my thought too, but I thought it was quite a generous read of Penelope. Like in my very generous moments, I'm like, Maybe she's blaming the queen because the queen has all the power, literally all the power in the world. It doesn't much matter, you know, if she blames the queen for things. But it turns out that the queen is a petty bitch, so. And Penn has not been great this season. She's been incredibly selfish and driven by her own ambition, which is cool. But it's not, yeah, I wish we saw more layers or more explanations. She's been very mean this season. And that makes, because the next season will be about her, right? And I'm like, oh, how can I root for her if I know how mean she's been? And, like, of course she deserves her happy ending and to be happy. But if Colin, uh, um, but, yeah, she's been mean. And it'll be hard for me to come to like her again and come to root for her and sympathise with her and just all that. It'll, it'll take a lot of work. And, but I guess they did that work with Anthony. Like we all hated Anthony in first. I mean, I still found him quite attractive, but he had a bit of a journey too. The problem is I think Colin's a bit of a milk toast as well. So it's kind of like a, a person who's just been mean for a whole season, like a guy that's been sort of wafting along for two seasons. So it's they've got the benefit of two seasons behind them, but also the disadvantage of that. All right, no more speculation on season three because we have this episode to get through first. So I'm calling an end to that, although I agree with everything that you've all said. However, let's go back to the situation at hand, which is I think, Dim, you were quite right in that Penny has been really mean this season, which is why when I say, oh, maybe she's just punching up, it's hard to hold both of those thoughts in my head at the same time because somebody who only wants to punch up wouldn't be as cruel as she has been a couple of times throughout the season. And Penn does get off on other people's shit. We've seen that multiple times. She quite enjoys like reveling in other people's misfortune, which is rough. But I guess she also did act as a bit of a smokescreen for the Bridgertons. Like if she'd gone harder on the Bridgertons in that first edition of Whistledown this episode, it could have been a lot worse for them. But she saved that for number two. All right, so Penelope's been quite mean through the course of this season. But this episode, things are coming to a head because she has Eloise, who is potentially going to be ruined by the Queen for something that Penelope has done. So she has that aspect of it. She's being called loyal by everybody that she loves and having to deal with like the deep emotional weight of recognizing how hypocritical that is. And she has to decide what to do about the queen thinking that Eloise is Lady Whistledown and the consequences of that. There's a lot that happens in this episode, but honestly, my biggest question is, what do you think of her big decision? I think she was too quick to think of that as the solution. In her defence, it was Genevieve's solution. But she made the decision of what news to taint Eloise's reputation with. And she chose the wording in which to do it. She chose the timing in which to do it. And she also knew the Bridgertons were already in a pretty bad state. And this is a family that's treated her better than her own most of the time. So I know we're supposed to feel sympathetic towards her, but it was a dick move. I don't know what the solution was, but she could have outed herself. Why was Eloise dispensable in that situation? Is it because Eloise has been getting close to someone else other than Penn? Is it because Penn's feeling neglected? Ultimately, it's quite a selfish move because she sacrificed Eloise to save herself. Yeah, I thought the conversation with Genevieve was really interesting because it felt like the show tried to cover its ass 
for just the reasons that you pointed out earlier, DM, in the sense that Penn has to be our heroine next season. And if it's Genevieve's idea and Genevieve says to do it, then obviously the blame doesn't sit so squarely on Penelope. But I think you're quite right, Adele, in that it's <laughs> it, it, it's her pen. It's literally Penn's pen that creates the issue that Eloise finds itself in. Well, so we have seen that Penn doesn't listen to anyone. So why is she so slavishly listening to Genevieve as they're out? Like, it's just, um, she's just been so sullen and, and mean and there hasn't been a lot of redeemable sort of aspects. I like, I think we all feel somewhat sympathetic on a yearning level. We've all been probably into someone who doesn't see us, but that's not enough to carry the behaviour and choices made this season. I agree. But what did Genevieve say? Something about a lady wouldn't purposely wear a bad dress or something like that, right? Something like that. Like what, how would you like to have seen this play out? Like presenting Eloise in a way in the Whistle Down papers, but not using the Theo story. Like how would you have liked that to play out? But also, you know, Penn won't like out herself. So like, what would you have liked to see? It's interesting, actually, because Genevieve doesn't know about Theo or the radicals, does she? So when she suggests, oh, a lady wouldn't wear a dress that she knows is unflattering, she can't possibly... And Penn does that all the time. All the time. There's a little bit of dramatic irony in there as well, a little nod to the viewers about Melody's dress. But, like, you're quite right, Dan, when Genevieve says that, she's not saying... I know that Eloise has been hanging out unchaperoned with radicals and also having a cross-class flirtation. What she's saying is print something a little unflattering, not ruin her completely. And it is Penny that takes that final big step. We also know that Genevieve knows that Eloise was sitting with her brother when she was picked up to be at Assignation. So she does know that there's probably something on Eloise because Eloise is impulsive. AF. They do a lot of covering their butt with the pen talking about why she can't take ownership because they wouldn't believe it because she's the best friend and she's just falling on the sword to protect Eloise and all this stuff. And I'm like, you're a writer. You write compelling stuff all the time. You could come up with something. Also, like 100% Penelope has something that proves that she's Lady Whistledown. Like she's been doing it for how many seasons now? There's no way she doesn't have something somewhere that's like, witness like the contracts I have with the printers or here's all of the money that I've made from selling the papers. Yeah, it just... Well, if you look any deeper into Eloise, talk to the printer, done. <laughs> he doesn't know who she is, but I bet the printer knows who Penn's lawyer is. It's not that hard. Brimsley didn't do a good job. Adele, you also mentioned there was a bit of jealousy there, right? And I think that was probably definitely why Penn chose to go so hard and that made me upset too because I thought their friendship would mean would be bigger than this. Like I thought, you know, it can survive. I think it's kind of highlighted that their friendship isn't that. It's conditional. Yeah. Or it's transactional even potentially. So do you, why do you think Ken's jealous? What do you think the origin of that jealousy is? Yeah, she has the Bridgerton family, you know, and they really... They let her be Eloise, whereas Penn and her, like, sisters and her mum, like, yeah, bit of that. I think you're quite right, actually. We obviously have an ongoing podcast pet theory about Penelope and Eloise actually being endgame. But I think in this case, it's less about any nascent romantic feelings Penny might have and more about... Eloise having everything and still it not being enough. Yeah. And not being appreciative. And she's willing to risk it in order to have a conversation with a printer's apprentice. And I feel like it's less romantic and more just about Penelope being so aware of what she doesn't have in comparison to Eloise. And then we're just watching Eloise throw it all away. It's jealousy. I think it might be anger as well. Let's transition, actually, because as we're talking about Penelope, we can talk about the Featheringtons as well. So we still have the scheme going on where they're attempting to absolutely fleece the ton out of their money for non-existent jewels. 
Lady Featherington certainly enjoying being a little superior to the Bridgertons and literally everybody else for the minute. She's passing on fake sympathies and really driving those stakes home. There's two really interesting things that she does in this episode. She calls Jack off Colin because it's it's depicted as if she wants Colin left alone because Penn's into Colin, and that may be an option. And then when Colin and his whole family are brushed with the second tar brush, she's kind of like, go at it, go for him. Do you think that's what it is? I she think- looks at Penn quite a lot in that first bit. Like she knows Penn's really into him. And she does love her girls. We know that. Uh, I disagree wholly. What, yeah, what do you think? I don't think she called Jack off Colin because of Penn. I feel like it was like she didn't want to be responsible for like the first, not for their rugby she, The knockout punch. Yeah, she didn't <laughs> want to do that. She wanted to like add on and she didn't want to be like the first one to like no, throw the brick at the Bridgertons, you know. She just wanted, yeah. Take advantage as they all fell over. Yeah, exactly. Like, she didn't want to do that. But maybe because, I'm not sure why, though, like, maybe the history they have together or maybe not. I don't know. But you're right. Like, but why would she? So interested in Colin and Penn? Because she had motherly instincts for the first time in about five years. So she doesn't really have motherly instincts towards Penn, ever. That's actually true. <laughs> yeah. I'm with DM completely on this. I think that she has had no motherly instincts. So she calls Laird Featherington off the Bridgertons in the first place because they're too powerful, right? And if they get fleeced, then they're not going to slink away and be all like embarrassed. Like they're 100% going to be like, hey, man, you fleeced us. We're the Bridgertons. Things don't play like that. Like, sorry, we're going to run you out of town now. And then when she sees Colin and Penelope together, she thinks so poorly of Penelope that there is no universe where she can picture Colin actually being interested in her daughter. Uh, I'm not meaning that they end up together. It's more like it would mean something to Penny if, like, Colin had something bad happen to his family. Yeah, you're so generous to her. There's no way she cares about that. She cares about herself. Why am I suddenly always defending Edwina and now I'm defending (laughs) Lady Featherington? Maybe I'm just wrong. Yeah, because what I think happens when she sees Penn and Colin, nothing crosses her mind at all about like their friendship or anything. Instead, she thinks, oh, right, you exist, Colin Bridgerton, and you are interested in investing. And I forgot about that while I was you know, dancing on the Bridgerton's grave over here. And now I remember, and you're fair game. So by the way, can you please go ahead and, and fleece the Bridgertons as well? It's it's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. I look forward to being legitimized next season and you falling to the ground and apologizing for negating my perspective on this. I'm sorry. I will take that bet because Lady Featherington is going to Lady Featherington and there is no way that she's coming out of this with any kind of like strong maternal bond. I love that DM's just watching this like a tennis match right now. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, cool. Moving on. I'm wrong. You're right. Whatevs. Yeah. Look, as long as I just wish everybody else in the world capitulated that neatly. That was really nice. Ken should be more worried about the fact that the Queen wants to use Whistledown as a strategic ally. Like, <laughs> that's a commitment and a hellhole you do not want to be in. Well, I think that's why she throws Eloise under the bus. I think you're right. Like, part of the reason why Penelope goes hard is because she doesn't want to be the Queen's lapdog. I wouldn't want to be a shill. You don't want to be Murdoch Press. I mean, plus, the more people who know your secret <laughs> identity, the less secret your identity, right? Yeah, and no freedom and the point of those papers and the, the income from that, although we don't really hear much about the income, I wish we did, is it is freedom, it is agency, it is independence. I wish she was living a bit more independently and giving less of a shit about everybody else finding happiness. But, yeah, anyway. Look, we touched on this really briefly when we talked about Lady Featherington enjoying her superiority for the minute because it's not the first scene, but it's sort of the first major scene where all of our characters end up together on a promenade. 
I was going to take a guess at where they ended up. And then I realized that I don't actually know London and or Regency London quite that well, but it doesn't matter. They all end up somewhere and they're all promenading together, which is where we see Lady Featherington enjoying her superiority. But also we see the Bridgertons and the Sharmas and Lady Danbury trying to pretend like nothing ever happened. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, so that's what a cut direct is. Because when you're reading your romance novel, you're like, um, okay, sure. So they just ignore them? And I'm like, oh, you like stare. And then you make it really obvious that you're like purposely making a stance and condemning them for something. The mums, they tried so hard to ignore it. And that was like the whole solution to the fallout of the wedding. And I was like, surely there's something else you can do. Stop trying. Yeah, um, denial isn't really a method here. <laughs> no, but it gave us some good scenes. Yeah. So maybe that, that wasn't so bad. It was a really good masterclass in how to give the cut direct. So I look forward to all of us trying that in our own lives in the future. I also like how diverse all the people that were giving them the cut direct were to this white family. I'm like, excellent. <laughs> that is true. Also, what did Mr. Cho do with his chambermaid? Was that the chamber? It was someone. Oh, it was definitely somebody. It's funny you said chambermaid because for some reason I thought it was how his valet and I was like, oh. Ooh. Mm. Chambermaid is sort of less ooh and more ew. There's still a power differential, so uncool even in the 1800s, but uh, wherever it is. I don't love how much the Bridgertons don't support their mum. <laughs> they were so reluctant to get their butts out there. They were making fun of all of it, even though it's like the day after. <sighs> I mean, they did it for her, but it was rough going there. And I do love that Benedict was like, what is going on? Like he knows something's up with Anthony and the Kate situation, but he hasn't landed on what it is. But seeing Danbury and Violet look disappointingly at each other across the Thames or whatever bond it is, but like also seeing how Anthony and Kate cannot not like draw together like magnets, even if it's just their gaze is kind of, it's a different kind of hot than we saw in season one, which was very physical. It's much more sort of yearning and restraint, I think, in season two. And I definitely think your preference probably falls on which season you prefer, but I'm down for some yearning and restraint when it's not Colin and Penn. (laughs) But it, it necessitates a bra- the Brains Trust, the Sharmas and the Bridgertons coming together at uh, Danbury HQ to have a conversation about denial's not working. We have to try something more <laughs> aggressive or not passive even. I have this ongoing theory that Violet is just a more likable, more liked Mrs. Bennet. And the scene in the drawing room before the promenade sort of reinforced that for me because she alone in that room is aware of the consequences of what has happened in a way that she has both she and Anthony. And I think it's an interesting scene because Anthony doesn't come into it till later, but it underscores what he has done as a character up until this point. And that is he and Violet have protected his siblings so thoroughly from the concept of consequences that when they are, in fact, all teetering on a precipice, they're making jokes about it and they just have no idea what it is that they're coming up against. And so that's why when Violet is like, we are going on a promenade and they're all like, why is Anthony still waiting for Edwina? Like, ha ha ha. And Violet's like, just do what I'm saying because you're all children and have no idea. Just listen to me. And then of course it takes, you know, Anthony, even Anthony at the start is like, whatever mom. And then she's like, no, no. And it takes him a second to come on board. But when it's him and Violet together, then everybody's like, okay. But like that idea of, Only she understands all of the ways that the social fabric of their lives can be torn apart and therefore cause them complete destruction. And she's the only one who's trying desperately to like hold those threads together while they're dancing along them. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And it sort of reflected a bit later with Anthony going like, I'm a lost cause, you're going to have to depend on number two. (laughs) The solution here is I'm out. 
it's on Benedict to continue the family line. And I think, if anything, the other youngest Bridgertons are a reflection of how Penn feels about Eloise, which is incredibly lucky in how stable and sort of loved they've been, even with, you know, Violet in and out a bit. And I think Daphne is not in this episode. Uh, Augie has a cough. But Daphne would have been aware too as the oldest daughter in the family. So that's something that Anthony and Daphne and Violet have in common is they're aware of the real world. I think it was a really good observation, Kate. I agree. We started off with the promenade, but there's also a scene with the Sharmas before they go promenading together where they're all having a bath where essentially Kate and Mary are just staring intently at Edwina, who is intently staring in her bathwater and not making eye contact with either of them. And then obviously Kate is trying to make up for everything and Mary offers the observation that lilies are good for stress. Which is hilarious if you think about Anthony getting hooked on the smell of lilies, which means he stresses her out and he's gotten hooked on the result of him stressing her out. And I think there's actually a little eye movement she does when he says that later on that sort of indicates maybe I'm correct this time. <laughs> so after the promenade, they all get back together. Anthony and Kate are sitting next to each other. We get a Newton sighting, which is delightful. And then for, I can't even remember it. There is some sort of thing that happens. And then Anthony and Kate end up standing next to each other and looking at each other. Oh, I know what happened. The elder ladies decide that a ball will solve everything, and to which Anthony, Edwina, and Kate all roll their eyes. But once Anthony voices, this isn't going to work, Edwina's like, let's do it, bro. But it does show that Kate and Anthony are in accord. Their reactions to this are mirrored throughout. Like, they actually are a good pairing that way. They do see the world the same way. They are mirrors for each other. But, yeah, Edwina does make the observation, was I that blind? Damn, I have a really important question to ask you because it's been well established in this season of podcasts that Adele is an Edwina apologist and I have deep reservations about who she is as a character. I have no defense this episode. (laughs) Because she goes on. It's a writing fail. I do not think it's a performance fail. I think it's a writing fail that she just pops up and has a snap at someone and disappears for another 10 minutes. No, you're right, this episode. How do you feel about Edwina, dear? Leaning towards apologist. I agree that the writing, I wish she was just, we got to see more of her and not just through Kate. Um, We only got glimpses of Edwina's, like, you know, like her position as the one who has to marry well for the family. Like if I think about it, she's never really got to be 100% herself. So if this is the acting out, like, fuck you all, I'm so sick of being the proxy, being the cipher, whatever, then you are going to do the highs and the lows and the messy (laughs) things while you're trying to work out, like, what is your point of view and what is your dance and things. She's just become very bratty 12-year-old because she probably didn't get to be a bratty 12-year-old. Well, then she doesn't get to go around saying things like, I'm a grown woman and I'm going to make my own decisions and my decisions is to be a viper who snaps. What do 12 to 14-year-olds say? I'm grown up now. You need to give me respect. Like, I mean, come on. Like, she's just acting out because she's probably never got to. DM, you turn me around. Back to being full apologist. Yes. (laughs) I don't think I'm a full apologist, but. <laughs> I also think it's maybe a bit of contrary, like everyone hates Edwina. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't hate Not her. Not on my watch. I don't hate her at all. She's quite snappish this episode though. But like, fair enough. Like yeah. she didn't get to marry Anthony. Like, you know, her wedding was ruined. So. And now she, something I've talked about is she was reading what was happening with the little context she had. So she was reading that they there was something going on. She just was reading what something was going on was wrong. But now she knows the context. She's like, oh, Jesus. Like, I thought they hated each other. They want to bonk. <laughs> but I do think the actors really sold that near each other, Newton thing in a really kind of, it, it could have looked quite staged and I thought it looked quite cute. That was cute. But he always smiles before he catches himself. Have, has anyone else noticed that? Like, he's smiling every time he's nearer. Yeah. It's a really nice character note. 
I don't hate Edwina either. I just want to put it out there. I just, it irritates the pants on me that she is constantly, I'm a grown up and I want to have control over my life and just gets to retcons all of the times when she was like, no, actually, I want you to make this happen for me. This is the thing that I really want. I really love him. I want to be my countess. And now she's like, oh, I'm sorry. You did everything in your power to make that happen for me, but it's not perfect. <sighs> now you get to be a bitch. That's my issue with the Duida. Moving on, we go from a lounge room. I suppose they're not called lounge rooms in Regency England. We move on from a drawing room to an art gallery. Is this the same art show that Simon and Daphne had their moment in last season? Or did they just happen to have a lot of art exhibitions? I did think that it was because I'm like, is this going to be like their little Easter egg every season that they end up at the art gallery? I did love Danbury going like, my name's on the door. (laughs) That was very boss move. But yeah, I think it's interesting to have that scene after Anthony sharing to Violet that I might not be the one to get married, but also the conversation between Mary and Anthony where he hears from someone else for the first time that Kate sacrificed a lot, has done exactly what he has done. He's heard that from her in different sort of wording, but it like really hammered home how similar they are, I think, in a way. Um, And, I mean, it was always nice to have Mary speaking lines. After that, he was locked in on her. Like he wanted to find Kate. Like something happened in his brain in that conversation where he needed to talk to her immediately. I love the gallery scene. Because he was just so, like, determined to talk to her. And I was like, yes, you go talk to her. And, you know, when he's giving them all the flowers and Kate walks past and he, like, sniffs her. <laughs> he smells her. I love that. Yeah, he really he's yeah. into. He's into her. He's very into her now, yeah. He's so into it, and I love and it. And you see Lady Danbury give him the look like, friend, like, stop smelling her. <laughs> smelling people is not subtle. But multiple times in this episode, he initiates and he initiates without tone and quite openly and borderline vulnerable. And she gets defensive every single time and then he kicks off because he can't let that um, like responded to. <laughs> but like he asked her about the kiss because I think he genuinely wanted to know, like, what does this mean for us? And she's just like, what kiss? <laughs> so apparently denial is strong in this episode. It was a bold move. It's also a very neat little callback to Eloise last episode with the, I can handle what I'm thinking. What I can't handle is not knowing what Theo is thinking. And here we have Anthony being like, well, we totally macked in the church. I know what I think about that. I don't know what you think about that. And I cannot stand it. So I have to keep finding you until I know what you're thinking as well. And then she says, we should be ashamed. And you can see on his face, he's like, I ain't. (laughs) It was subtle. It wasn't like a, I ain't. It was more like, you might be. I did love that. I love like them revolving around naked statues. And um, yeah, it was nice to have seen just talking to each other. Because they were uh, touching themselves at the beginning of the episode, thinking about that kiss. So it was something. It is a very sensual statue that they find themselves talking around as well. There's a little bit of a red herring in this art gallery scene as well, because after all of the, as you put it, DM, all the cut directs at the promenading place, they aren't getting cut directs at the art gallery, even if people are being politely bitchy to Violet and to Lady Danbury, they're still talking to them. They're engaging with them. And Violet even tries a little bit of bitchy on herself with, oh, your invitation didn't come. Oh, well, we'll see if we have space right back at them. So, you know, there's a little bit of a battle royale going on there in terms of polite bitchiness. But it appears at least as if the Bridgertons haven't lost as much face as Violet was worried about. Nope. Kate asks Edwina to forgive her. Apparently she's been apologizing a lot. She can continue to apologize every day, but Edwina's not giving her much. Did this have to happen in an art gallery? Maybe not. But clearly Edwina is avoiding Kate at all costs. So she does have a right to be annoyed. Could have mentioned you were macking on the dude that I was about to marry. 
Anthony rocks up randomly at the Royal Academy of the Arts party. Felt a bit like a frat party. Yeah, I thought it was the Royal Academy of the Arts party as well. I think it's Benedict's apartment. So I think that he's holding a private party with all of his art gallery friends. Uh, his turret or attic room. I just love that the one time Anthony wants to talk to Benedict and reveal some stuff, Benedict is like, you know, boobs. <laughs> But he does give the advice, you need to look at it from a different perspective. Like, situation might not change, but you need to change your, like, your consideration of it. And it does seem like Anthony actually pays attention to that advice because he does reference it later. So, Benedict, if your very repressed brother finally comes to you to talk, maybe make yourself available. Just pointing that out. Because next time he'll just go, yeah, not bothering with you. I'm just going to talk to my sister. Given what Anthony got up to last season and the parties that he was hanging out at, I'm not entirely sure that I accept his self-righteousness when he comes into Benedict's layer of hedonistic glory. I think it's a little understandable. So, Dan, I'm a little bit of an Anthony apologist, mainly because eldest children understand each other. And I can understand it a little bit because, you know, Anthony is so deep in his error that he can't see a way out of it, except to take himself out of the equation altogether. Like he's made such a huge error. He's made such a terrible judgment. He clearly can't be trusted to carry on the good Bridgerton name, which means that it's going to be up to Benedict. So, of course, he expects Benedict to have understood and internalized all of those feelings without ever having a conversation about them. And then change all of his behavior to then match what Anthony's idea of what respectable eldest sibling is going to look like. So not fair, not on board with it. The tiniest little bit understandable. I do like that he threw in something about Benedict and the tea at the end, though. I Eldest sibling's going to eldest. It does show that Anthony is across everything, even if he's not there, like, that constantly monitoring your family would be exhausting. And I guess it does highlight what we, he does learn at the end that he might not have known. But, um, I mean, Anthony hasn't seen boobs since before he met Kate. <laughs> we don't ever have that being discussed, right? He's celibate this whole time. Yeah. Nice. Good. <laughs> I do love that in romance books where the horn dog meets a girl and then doesn't realize he's not horn dogging anymore because he's really into her and he's not being driven by his uh, equipment anymore. So I, I really do love that because I don't think he's realized. <laughs> but he's a goner. All of the scheming that's been happening between Violet and Lady Danbury and to a very small extent, Mary culminates in this ball that Lady Bridgeton is going to throw with a theme that I think we can all agree is a little bit on the nose. Also, why aren't they all wearing orange? <laughs> oh, fuck off. Harmony is that just day. an Australian Harmony thing? Day. Harmony Day? <laughs> so in Australia, we have a day called Harmony Day. It's actually the international day for the elimination of racial discrimination. But one of our illustrious governments in the past decided that that was too much to handle. And instead, we would unite under the term harmony and also wear orange. And it's a farce. Much like, and check this segue out, this ball turns out to be because literally nobody shows up. Do you think they would have showed up if Penn hadn't written that gossip piece about Eloise? This is a very good question, Dan, and I'm going to turn it back on you a little bit. Because I had the same thought, but they all arrive sort of ready for the ball. The music's playing. The food is out. They have time for a country dance together as a family, which is delightful on every level. And then the Lady Whistledown papers arrive at the Bridgerton Ball. So if people were not going to attend the ball because of Lady Whistledown's reveal about Eloise, then they would have had to know about it before the Bridgertons do. And I appreciate Penelope's organizational brain. And certainly she is amazing at project managing many things. I'm not sure she is good enough to manage the entirety of London getting papered with this groundbreaking revelation 
so that nobody, not the Sharmas, not the Danbury's, not the Bridgertons, none of their servants know about it before the ball starts. So, yeah. So I don't know. What do, What are your thoughts about that? You made a very good point. You like really thought about it. <laughs> Because it was convenient, wasn't it? It was like, oh, they had a beautiful little dance and moment together. And, you know, Kate and Edwina seemed to sort of finally, there was something there, like, I feel like Edwina was softening a bit. And then the servants came in, like, the directors and screenwriters just had to do that. You're right. So, like, hmm, so you've, you've persuaded me. They weren't going to go anyway. <laughs> but, like, they sort of, because you, you, we, when we were talking about the gallery scene before, the other people there was no cut directs, but they were still a bit rude and standoffish. So I don't know how I feel. It's like, would they, like, you know, Violet and Danbury and, like, Mary, the mum, trying so hard to... Um, they try to repair everything. Repair everything. Mm. But, like, would that would this have worked at all? Like, Maybe it's easier to give a cut direct in a promenade when there's some space between you and other people and it feels a bit more aggressive to cut direct someone when you're, like, in a bit more of a smush in a room. The gallery was busy. And, like they, yeah. and they weren't warm towards Danbury or Violet or Mary. They were just tolerating them, I guess. So... I guess my big thing is why did Penn put it out just before the ball? Why couldn't she wait till the next day? Because really, like, Edwina is the collateral here. Like, I mean, Anthony, whatever, but Edwina hasn't really done anything to deserve any of this, and it has consequences for the whole Bridgerton family. Like, could she have just given them the night? Could she have released it the next day? I don't know that Edwina is collateral. I think Edwina will come out of this okay because there was that question, if you remember at the end of the wedding episode of, oh, maybe Edwina knows something about the Bridgertons that we don't. And oh, now that Eloise is ruined and not only is ruined, but has ruined her entire family, Edwina not being associated with the Bridgertons actually works out quite well for her. Yeah. So I just want to go back quickly to the country dance. Because I love it when the Bridgertons are together and they're not, like, shitting on Violet or Anthony. I do like the choice of, because it's such an empty room, the floor drawings that they had, like, the footmen or whatever doing was such a really cool, like, set dressing decision to do. But I really loved that Benedict's advice to have a different perspective had Anthony called down his younger siblings to dance. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about that is it's the first time Violet has danced since Edmund died which is revealed in season one that she hadn't danced in a very long time. So that's why she's so puffed. <laughs> but it was such a joyous scene and I wish there were more joyous scenes. Like it is such an angsty show, as you were saying. It's based on very angsty material. It was so nice to see that connection and frivolity and, you know, you saw Kate dancing with Violet. It was just so lovely. It was a really beautiful scene. Yeah, I did love it um, when Anthony called down the two younger kids. Because, you know, they're off somewhere. They're too young. So that was really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, Anthony, you are a good big brother. Yeah. And I think we see the sort of magnet effect of Kate and Anthony when they're together. They almost cannot. It's really hard for them to keep their hands off of each other. <laughs> but, you know, obviously the news comes out about Eloise. We see Violet's reaction, but not the brothers. I would have thought I'd see something a bit more visceral as a reaction. Um, we just see Eloise get really upset and run up the stairs. Because not only did Penn reveal her stuff, but she kind of lectured her <laughs> second hand as well. <laughs> Pretty full on. Penn was lecturing her firsthand anyway, so I don't think that that's a, mm. that big of a change in the written form. I think it makes sense that we see Violet's reaction, because if we go back to my theory about her being a likable Mrs. Bennett. Again, she's the only person in the room who truly understands the consequences. Like, the brothers are going to be okay. They might find it a little bit trickier to find a wife, but they're rich and handsome and have a lot of power. Like, they're going to be absolutely fine. It's all of the girls who are going to suffer. And Violet's the one who knows about that as well. So I legitimately forget there are other daughters because Hyacinth is underage, Daphne's not there, and Francesca has disappeared. So I'm like, what implications? Francesca Watch season two continues. I just want to go back really quickly to the country dance, but I thought was something really interesting about the production. I was trying to Shazam the song that they were dancing to, and it wouldn't come up. I was like, 
Shazam works all the time. I don't understand why it's not coming up, but it turns out it's actually a song that's never been released. It's a Chris Bauer song that's never been released. So we don't really know the name of the song or anything about it, except that it is the song that they play under the Family Dance and the Harmony episode. So I thought that was really nice. So Eloise leaves the scene. Then everybody leaves the scene, but two people leave the scene and end up together again, which is the part I believe, DM, that you were waiting for the whole episode. Yes. Hold out. It's great. Because of the yearning and the build up. It's finally happened. And it was beautiful. It was exactly what I wanted and needed. There was so much heavy breathing. But then, you know, they acted on it too. I've written down in my notes there's a full moon, there's a gazebo, there is an argument. It's poorly edited. I just want to stay on them. Why are you editing it so, like, artistically? Just give me one frame, stay on them, right? I didn't notice. So this might be a <laughs> this might be a you thing. It's so weirdly edited and staged. Like, it's great, but it's also like, you could have done this better. It was very artistic. It felt different to the way the love scenes were filmed in season one. But that also made sense because this is a different couple and it's, you know, enemies to lovers, a lot of more yearnings. Of course, it'd be a bit more, you know, sensual and like soft and not stay on them because <laughs> I'm just thinking about like the library scene in season one and, you know, like how we got to and, see it. And the stair like, scene, yeah, you, they do stick on them. I, just, yeah. I want some more sticking on them, please. It's kind of interesting because Daphne was ostensibly like Kate is a virgin too. Kate seems to know. A bit more about what she's doing. Discuss. That is true. I really liked her little... Because <laughs> what was it? Like, was discuss like... what you're doing with your hands, dear. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, but, but doesn't she, like, sort of, you know, hold his head down or, like, or, or like bring or like hold on to his hand as he, like, he's like, oh, can I do this? And she's like, yeah. She's less tentative than Daphne. Yeah. At the beginning, probably. Um, I mean, it makes sense that she would have a little bit more knowledge because she hasn't been as protected as Daphne, right? Like the whole point about Daphne is that she is so protected and so naive that she has no idea what it means that Simon is pulling out every time they have sex. Whereas Kate, I think, in the necessity of her being the grown-up in her family, would have come across things that you know, Edwina has been protected from, but Kate could not be protected from. So it makes a little bit more sense. She might have sat in on Edwina's talk. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but also like Kate's a grown up. She's 20 something. Yeah. But it's not only that, it's that she and Anthony, particularly in the scene, are meeting each other as equals, right? Anthony finally mm. appreciates that Kate is just like him and has done everything that she has done for her family and that they have that in common that her strength of will is as strong as his but more importantly that she's probably the only person in the world who understands him on that level whereas for Simon and Daphne like they never came together as equals he was always more powerful in that relationship until obviously the highly controversial and very not okay reproductive coercion scene in this case when Anthony and Kate finally come together they they're equals from the very beginning so I think it makes a lot more sense that that would be treated visually and narratively as part of their sex scene as well so all of that being said let's get right down to it I want to know in details what do we actually think happened during this scene because there are nuances that could potentially go either way so what do we think I think what we do know for sure is that he went down on her. (laughs) Yes. Tick one. Absolutely. Which also makes sense because he's been very turned on by her scent. So I feel like that's kind of an extension of that. Like he always wants to inhale and everything her. So that's probably an extension of that. So tick. After that, I'm not sure because of the editing. (laughs) No, you're right. The editing is just, and then his bodies smushing together. But you're right. He does go down on her. My notes, I just wrote them like what he said, and I really loved what he was saying. It was really like... Oh, yeah, we forgot so all the, the thing before the, the verbal. Like, <laughs> he was like, it is madding how much... Yeah, no, you're right. There was a whole, like, three-minute scene before that, yeah. Yeah, they said so much, and because, like, they were sort of, like, not prowling, but, you know, it was a bit more, and then they finally, you know, kissed and... 
What did he say? It is maddening how much you consume my very being. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, oh, I've never met anyone like you. It's maddening how much you consume my very being. And he talks about running away with her, which is also very interesting because he did try to run away with someone else last season. But he also mentions his family. He thinks his family despises him and that despite that, he kind of just wants to be with her. She's his, like, safe harbour. He can be himself. He does it. He's understood. He just wants to be known, I think. Oh, Anthony. He is a bit of a poet, our Anthony. And then he tried to reverse psychology. He's gone inside and she's like, I never do anything you want me to do. And I just said that before. So the editing is very careful through this scene. But I think from numerous rewatchings for science, and this podcast, because I respect our listeners so much that I wanted to do a good job and therefore had to rewatch this scene a few times just so that I could be there for you. Yeah. Attention to detail. Yeah. I don't think that his pants come off. I think he wears his pants through everything, which might suggest that Kate ends the evening still technically a penetrative virgin in that all of Anthony's talk about being a gentleman gets like stretched to the very limit, but doesn't quite tip over into breaking point. I think something else could have happened and I keep putting my hands up and I think it, he might've been the giver, <laughs> but I, who knows? You get more information from the flashbacks immediately thereafter, which is very weird choice. But what I do love is that he wakes up happy. He actually looks like worryless for the first time ever. And then she's not there. And he knows that's bad. <laughs> he wanted to cuddle. He did want to cuddle. I think it tracks that Anthony would be a giver without worrying about receiving and still wake up happy in the morning. I think these are all Agreed. things that would be consistently true with Anthony's character. I have this headcanon that, like, he didn't know he was a cuddler until that night. So he wakes up. Kate is gone. Kate weirdly is in her nightgown as she rushes into her bedroom, and I'm like, that was a weird choice because she wasn't in a nightgown. I thought that was in case the maid came in. Like, she oh, had to be dressed maybe. in her nightclothes so that the maid, if anybody came into her room, it would be clear that she was where she was supposed to okay. be all night and wearing what she was supposed to wear. But it's not like she stays in her room. Well, no, she has to have her flashbacks of like 20 minutes, uh, not even 20 minutes. It was like two minutes ago and then decides to go for a ride in the storm. Interestingly, Anthony goes home, gets the ring, goes straight over to the Danbury house to propose to Kate and is soaking wet. So he really didn't, he's trying to lock her down basically. <laughs> and she's gone and he knows that's bad well I mean Kate's doing what Kate does right when she's she runs she runs but also like when she needs to get out of her head the one thing that she does for herself ever is take these hell for leather rides you know these absolutely fearless rides it's something that she's done the entire season so obviously if she's going to have thinking time of course she's going to do it on horseback and because it's Bridgerton of course she's going to do it with her hair completely loose and this amazing cape that goes over herself and the entire horse just so we can get those dramatic riding in the rain scenes and then of course Anthony's going to follow her I, I wrote down Kate's riding in a storm which is stupid Anthony follows her riding in the storm which is also stupid just wait dude she'll come back <laughs> But we do have this very dramatic freeze frame of the horse refusing to go over a wall. There is a lightning strike. There is like almost a frozen image of it. And we see Kate go down and hit her head. We see Anthony see that happen. And then the episode is done. One thing happens before the episode is finished. Anthony calls her Kate twice. I hadn't noted that, but yes. I did notice he called her Miss Sharma while he was writing, though. I'm like, dude, you just probably had all sorts of things in her. He's a gentleman. Propriety, yes. The horses care. She hasn't given leave to use her name yet. Yeah. So they're meant to be. 
Well, I mean, we don't know that for sure because it could be that Kate is dead because bum, 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 she's fallen very dramatically off a horse and hit her head. And and that is Antony's nightmare, right? It's also a very classic literature trope in that she finally got some and now, of course, she has to be punished for it. So well done, Bridgerton, with the literary callbacks to every other 19th century woman who ever had sex in literature and then had to die for the pleasure. So, yeah. End of episode. All right. I think that I can guess what all of our highlights of this episode may have been. I imagine we all share the same highlight. Am I wrong? Tell me I'm wrong. I was thinking the country dance. So probably not. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Turns out I was wrong. Dm, what was your highlight? Anthony inhaling Kate's scent. That was actually a really good scene because I understand it. When someone smells so good, you you go a bit bananas. Until I saw this season, I've never considered feralness to be attractive, but, like, he's feral. He's sick for her. It's great. It's so good. But, of course, you know, the love scene is a highlight too. Hmm. What are your what the featheringtons? Why is Will in this season? Dude, you don't like talking to people. You don't like the aristocracy. Why are you running a club? Of course it's not succeeding. And then, like, apparently Featherington, who was a lush and a gambler, had very good records. I don't believe that. Anyway, I just feel like this is giving Jack and Will something to do, treading water. But, yeah, it's just poor Will. He's in dire need of some good material. We didn't talk about this when we were discussing the Featheringtons, uh, but Lord Featherington shows up at Will's new club, threatens him by saying, I know you throw that fight, and basically says, you don't talk about me, I won't talk about you, we've got mutually assured destruction here, everything's fine. But you're right, no concept of why Will is still in the season or what exactly this is supposed to do for any of the storylines that are going on. Yes, that's my very serious WTF. Yeah, what was your what the Featherington moment? Pen, just being Pen again when I was, you know, expecting more from her. Pen writes this episode of Lady Whistledown, clearly struggling with some level of writer's block while she does it. And then at the very end, she snaps her quill in half and throws it in the fire. Do you think she's just reacting to what she had to do? Do you think it's a broader stroke picture of her position as Lady Whistledown? What do you think is going on there? I didn't read that much into it. I just thought she was being dramatic. Actually, that would be my second WTF because she did that later in the evening. She would have written that a couple of hours before. Well, maybe she like times her very dramatic motion to the time when she knows that Lady Whistledown is going to arrive at people's houses. And she's like, that's it. It's done now. It can't be taken back. I'm going to snap my quill in half and throw it in the fire for narratively ambiguous reasons. Sure. (laughs) What's your WTF? Do you know, I don't think I have one necessarily for this episode because it moved quickly. I think if I had to choose a moment, it would be Edwina sniping at Kate in moments where it didn't narratively make sense anymore, like at the art gallery and then at the ball after we had this amazing harmonious country dance where everybody was smiling and laughing and having a good time and, you know, really finding joy and pleasure in each other. And then to snipe at Kate again at that moment. I do take your point very seriously about all of this being writer decisions and not character or actor decisions, but I do feel like it undermines any kind of sense that we're supposed to have about Edwina's personal growth and her taking a position as an adult and beginning to make decisions about her life because these are not the actions of an adult. And certainly Mary has come to some harsh realizations about her own culpability and everything that happened and is there trying very lightly to make amends. Like, I'm sorry, Mary. Actually, <laughs> I, I turns out I do have another WTF moment. It's when Mary, instead of saying, I'm sorry, you had to deal with too much and it wasn't fair. She says, try some lily soap, dear. Whereas Edwina is just completely incapable of seeing anything from anybody else's perspective other than her own, which mm. just is a constant irritating burr under my skin. And I, yeah, as you say, I do think it's a writer thing and not a, not an actor or character thing. 
I do want to say, like, I really enjoyed this episode, though, as much as we've been lovingly critical. And, and then WTF is obviously things that get our go. I really enjoyed this episode. I was really pleasantly surprised, particularly after the wedding, which is quite crawling. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was really great. And I'm very much looking forward to talking about next episode. Okay. Now it's time for What Would Damry Do? In this section, we imagine ourselves in Lady Danbury's shoes with our best pithy and wise advice for the lovelorn characters of Romance Landia. Today's letter comes from Ravenna, the titular character from Amelie Howard's Rules for Heiresses. Dear Lady Danbury, I am what one might call politely unconventional, but all I really long for is a life well lived. Granted, stowing away on my brother's ship bound for the Caribbean and dressed as a man probably may have taken it a step too far, but I was fine and everything was working out until I ran into my first fiance and childhood nemesis, Portland. Things happened and the only way to save his reputation and mine is to marry. The problem is that this thing that happened led to me wanting much more to happen, but he flat out refuses to consummate the marriage or even come near me. I know that neither of us wanted this to happen, but it's happened now. How can I make him see that I'm ready for this next adventure and I want to take it with him? WWDD. What happened? <laughs> what was the thing? It was a little bit of like a everything but situation. Oh, I see the relationship between the book and the episode. Proximity. Get someone to lock them in a cabin. Wait for the tension to get to boiling point and consummate that situation. Are they still on a ship? No, they're... Oh, I just assumed they were. They spend some time in the Caribbean and then they end up back in London. I agree, Vidal. Proximity, get back on a ship. Or find a garden shed somewhere. Or carriage. <laughs> carriage. What is she trying to escape? I mean, she was trying to escape a conventional life. But then she goes on this adventure and then gets caught in a very compromising situation. And then it's like... Oh, so she's Eloise as well. It could still be an unconventional life, even if she's married to somebody, as long as she's married to somebody who is also looking for adventures. Look, the more I think about it, the more I think I'm right. Proximity, they are exes, still got some chemistry. I mean, I feel like my solution is always, like, work it out physically, <laughs> which is probably terrible advice. Bang it out. <laughs> Bang it out. Yeah. Bang it out. Well, I mean, that's the problem. He won't bang it out. She's real on board with the banging it out scenario. And he's like, no, no. What's going on with him? What's going on with the dude? He's got his reasons. Shrug. She doesn't know what they are. Like, I want to read this now. Damn you. And your twisted ways. I do love a heroine in historical times who wears pants. Like, I mean, I mean, does she actually get to have an adventure or she just compromised right away? She goes on her brother's ship and, like, dresses like a man and pretends to be a deckhand for, like, I don't know. I don't actually know how long. I feel like that's just, like, being surrounded by B.O. for a couple of weeks. It doesn't sound like much of an adventure. And what are you like on ships, Dan? Is it your idea of sexy? No, i probably get motion sickness. <laughs> I'll get seasick. It's not very sexy. Yeah. All right. I think she can wear him down is what I'm saying. I mean, he's been worn down once before, at least, so. Well, he was an active participant. He didn't get to 100%, but he was an active participant. He didn't go around all the bases or whatever sports analogy that is, but yes. Yeah, he was. It still counts. (laughs) Keep doing everything but. Yeah. And I don't think Kate was disappointed in not getting everything. I love that we had to talk about sex so much for season one, and now we're like, oh, it's just (laughs) (sighs) So, Kay, why did you recommend Rules for Heiresses? Um, Look, it's a really fun book. It definitely has a feisty heroine who has her own mind and has ideas about what she wants for her own life. Um, But you're quite right in that it was the everything but scenario that I thought was a neat little tie into this episode. Uh, But it is a really fun book. And you will find that Cortland has his reasons as well. But it's okay. Everyone, it's a romance novel. Eventually they do bang it out and everything turns out okay in the end. But it's very enjoyable. So you should go. Thank God. (laughs) Don't leave a gal hanging. Okay, I think that is it. 
Thanks for joining us for episode seven. We'll be back in a fortnight with another episode. Huge thank you to our guest host, DM. DM, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? I am on Twitter sometimes at D-I-E-M-N-H-U-N-G-U-I-E-N. I mainly lurk and occasionally tweet about K-pop. So you can follow me if you want to, but it's just nonsense. Get all your K-pop needs. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at Bridget and Pod and Instagram as at WWDDPod or send us an email at BridgetonPod at gmail.com. Our editor is Ben McKenzie of Splendid Chaps Productions. You can find them at SplendidChaps.com. Subscribing on your favorite podcast app will guarantee you never miss a new episode. Rating us or leaving a review helps other listeners find us and also makes your ankles shapely and inviting. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people. Thanks for listening and remember, WWDD.